Welcome. I'm Caroline Batten. I'm a doctoral student, and I'm an enthusiastic member of Oxford's Team Fantasy. This 10-minute uh, paper was originally given at Here Be Dragons, the Oxford Fantasy Literature Summer School in 2018. Uh, and it's intended to be a basic introduction to the life, work, and immense influence of Ursula K. Le Guin, a giant in fantasy and science fiction. So let's get started. Ursula Kroeber Le Guin was born in 1929 in Northern California, the daughter of noted anthropologist Alfred Kroeber and the writer Theodora Krakow Kroeber. Le Guin grew up absorbing the ideas of her parents' eclectic circle of friends, which included anthropologists, writers, journalists, and physicists. Uh, and several of these accomplished individuals were also members of California native communities. So Le Guin grew up not only on the Greek and Norse mythology offered to her by her parents, but on folktales belonging to the peoples of the American West. She submitted her first story for publication at age 11. She always knew what she wanted to do. Uh, when asked in an interview, what would you be if you weren't a writer? Le Guin replied, dead. By the early 60s, Le Guin had written unpublished, rejected drafts of five novels, all set in the invented Central European country of Orsinia. She turned instead to science fiction, she said, because there was a market for it, but also because she found it beautiful. Her first novel, Rokanon's World, was published in 1966, and from there she wrote brilliant works at an impressive rate. For our purposes, there are two cycles within her corpus that have been the most widely read, the most influential, and the most lauded. The first is the high fantasy Earthsea cycle, uh, which includes the trilogy A Wizard of Earthsea, The Tombs of Atuan, and The Farthest Shore, followed 20 years later by Tehanu and two other books. The second is the Hainish cycle, which consists of novels and short stories set in a future in which various civilizations on various planets, including Earth, contact one another for the first time and set up a confederacy called the Ecumen under the guidance of the planet Hain, which originally seeded all of the other planets with genetically modified human populations. Le Guin's writing is always sociologically meticulous. She documents the planets of the Ecumen and the peoples of the Hardic and Kargad lands in Earthsea in observant, concrete cultural detail. She attributed some of this approach to her father's influence. Alfred Kroeber was, for the time, a really cutting edge anthropologist. He received the first doctorate in anthropology ever granted by the state of California. Le Guin used that sociological bent to create incredibly vivid worlds, and the resulting level of cultural detail is now considered standard for quality high fantasy. Indeed, Le Guin was one of the first fantasy authors to employ what is now a trope of the genre, the idea that names have power and the true name of a thing grants you access to its deepest nature. She invented the Ansible, an interstellar communication device in the Hainish cycle, and the Ansible now appears in numerous later sci-fi works. She was also arguably the first author to send a protagonist to wizard school. Ged learns to become a mage at Roke, an all-male academy for magic. It's worth noting that the basic plot of A Wizard of Earthsea is as follows. A talented boy from impoverished origins 
discovers he has the ability to perform magic and goes to wizard school. There, he encounters an enemy with whom he is intimately connected, and in their first encounter, that enemy gives him a scar, which, subsequently, hurts whenever the enemy is nearby. When asked about Harry Potter, Le Guin said, quote, Rowling has many virtues. Originality isn't one of them. The more relevant point, perhaps, is that Le Guin's thematic and aesthetic choices have been hugely influential in fantasy literature, but she's often left behind when we talk about the towering figures of the genre. So what are those thematic choices? Le Guin has a lot of the usual cultural inheritances of post-Tolkien fantasy. Earthsea is broadly medieval, with a social hierarchy ranging from kings to peasants. Dragons loom large, magic is real, the human relationship with nature is essential. The Hainish cycle draws, too, on the aesthetics of early sci-fi. Scientists and anthropologists venture into new worlds with new technology, and culture clashes ensue. But set pieces like Gethen, a planet on which all people are androgynous and only gain secondary sex characteristics, which can be either male or female, during certain periods, were revolutionary in the field. Indeed, she brought unusual, specific, recurring concerns to all of her works that we could consider particularly Leguinian. The idea she is perhaps most concerned with is that of balance. Le Guin followed Taoism and translated Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching. A central Taoist belief is that the universe works harmoniously in its own ways, um, and that all forces in it naturally seek to be balanced with one another. If one exerts one's own aggressive will, one may disrupt that harmony and cause harmful consequences. We should only act when necessary. We should act while being mindful of maintaining the world in balanced harmony. Mages in Earthsea must work to uphold the equilibrium, the central balance of forces that keeps the world from chaos. Le Guin's mages were Jedi Knights before Jedi Knights, right? Ged is taught time and again that he must consider the rippling consequences of every action. To light a candle is to cast a shadow, his master tells him. The creation of Ea, an epic detailing the history of Earthsea, declares, quote, only in silence the word, only in dark the light, only in dying life, bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Arguably, Le Guin's environmentalism and her pacifism, two strong themes in her novels, relate back to this principle of living in peace with the world. Her belief in anarchism and voluntary public service is also, I think, related to this idea of maintaining equilibrium and rejecting authoritarian dominance as antithetical to balance. In the climax of A Wizard of Earthsea, Ged gives his own name to the deadly shadow that has been pursuing him, declaring it to be part of his own nature. The wizard and the shadow embrace, and Ged is made whole. Numerous scholars have pointed out that this shadow is really similar to the Jungian shadow self, the repressed unconscious part of us that must be integrated into our self-concept to achieve healthy adulthood. Le Guin hadn't read Jung before uh, writing Earthsea, 
And while Ged's shadow confrontation certainly follows the Jungian pattern, it more obviously suits her interest in holding dark and light in balance. Fantasy is the language of the inner self, she wrote, and noted, the darkness within us can't be done away with by swinging a sword. These tenets also inform her portrayal of the androgynous Gethenians in The Left Hand of Darkness. A Gethenian poem reads, quote, light is the left hand of darkness and darkness the right hand of light, like hands joined together, like the end and the way. Le Guin tries in this novel to convey a theme she's discussed elsewhere, that male and female qualities are equally valuable and must be held in balance. This gender essentialist view, which assumes that all women are one way and all men are another, binary and distinct, perhaps no longer satisfies. Even in the 60s and 70s, Le Guin's feminist credentials were the subject of debate. Le Guin herself has admitted that Earthsea is a patriarchal fantasy, heavily male-dominated, and that her use of male pronouns for the androgynous Gethenians was not an ideal choice. The second book in the Earthsea cycle, The Tombs of Atuan, focuses on the coming of age of a female protagonist, Tenar, who serves as the high priestess of what is essentially a death cult, and eventually frees herself from its hold. The women of the Temple of the Nameless Ones have only symbolic power, and they're subject to the Kargish patriarchal ruler, who's literally called the God King. They willingly serve the patriarchal order. They give themselves up to be spiritually devoured. They become their own jailers. Tenar, who governs a dark labyrinth in which she sacrifices victims, is both the Minotaur and Ariadne. She comes to reject the dark and extricates herself, destroying the labyrinth in the process. Yet no alternative for a self-possessed, newly freed woman is immediately forthcoming. She has nowhere to go. Le Guin doesn't seem to have anywhere to put her. It's only in Tehanu that Le Guin offers a partial vision of meaningful female life in Earthsea. There's so much more to say about Le Guin and her hugely rich body of work, and it has engendered all kinds of debate among readers and scholars. Uh, but for now, I will leave you with her words uh, from a commencement address delivered to Mills College in 1983. I hope you live without the need to dominate and without the need to be dominated. I hope you are never victims, but I hope you have no power over other people. And when you fail, and are defeated and in pain and in the dark, then I hope you will remember that darkness is your country, where you live, where no wars are fought and no wars are won, but where the future is. Our roots are in the dark. The earth is our country. Why did we look up for blessing instead of around and down? What hope we have lies there not in the sky full of orbiting spy eyes and weaponry, but in the earth we have looked down upon, not from above, but from below, not in the light that blinds, but in the dark that nourishes, where human beings grow human souls. Thank you for your time. <laughs>